Hey everyone, this is Audiobooks All Day. I'm Kevin. And I'm Jeff. For chapter three, we read Band of Brothers. And let me tell you why. First of all, thank you to all those who have served our country. We just celebrated Veterans Day. We appreciate you for all you've done. And in honor and in light of that, we would like to share with you my favorite, uh, one, of, one of my favorite books of all time and definitely my favorite history book that I've probably ever read uh, by one of my favorite authors, Stephen Ambrose. He brought us Band of Brothers, which then got turned into a miniseries. So one of the reasons why I've been really inspired to read this book kind of game town through our family history. We've had, like most Americans, have had a lot of family that have served in the military. Uh, our great-grandpa fought in Normandy with Patton's third, uh, Patton's third Army, fought through France, and then on into Germany. And so we have a lot of, uh, yeah, we just have a lot of pride in the military and a lot of uh, respect for it, too. Band of Brothers takes place during the years 1942 to 1945. And I really wanted to explore this period, especially in Europe, uh, given our family connection, but also it was one of the most important offenses that has probably ever occurred, this European offensive to destroy uh, Nazi Germany and the fascists in Italy, along with all of the other minor factions that had kind of arisen. So the book Band of Brothers, I've known about this book for many, many years. And like Jeff said, he was, um, you know, he... Uh, what he was saying, he knew it was a miniseries and all those things. And the reason he knew it is like from like the age of like six, Jeff started reading history books on mass and he would just read all these history books and he would share a bunch of stuff with me. And as I said in our introductory episode, as, as a kid, I really wasn't much of a reader. I always really wanted to get into reading, but for one reason or another, I really didn't. And anyway, I remember and I don't remember how young we were, but we were just kids when Band of Brothers came out. I don't know how young we were, but uh, Jeff, I watched a couple episodes with my brother. My parents didn't really want me to see it because I was pretty young, but um, I'd watch it with Jeff anyway. And I don't really remember understanding the the gravitas of the situation, of what they were doing, of, of the offensive that they were embarking on, you know, and their part that they played in the invasion of Europe. And not that long ago, I was just kind of thinking, I had just talked to the, on the phone with one of my best friends who's part of the military. This had instilled a love and appreciation for the military. And I asked Jeff, what were some of his favorite books about World War II? And he said, Band of Brothers. So I read Band of Brothers. And, and Jeff, why don't you take, us, take some time right now and just tell us about Band of Brothers. What, what happens in the book? So it explores Easy Company, which was a part of the 101st Airborne within the 506th Regiment. And so this was essentially a company of uh, 300 people whose characters you get to learn very, very well as you go throughout the story. Uh, the story kicks off in 1942 when they're at Camp Tekoa in Georgia. And the, the soldiers had just been assembled into this new airborne division. So airborne was a very new thing in the military. Uh, their whole goal was to parachute behind enemy lines and to uh, pave the way for uh, ground assaults to come in. So they had different targets and different uh, gun embankments that were their targets and bridges that they needed to capture. And it was going to be used as a new tool. They weren't the only ones. The Germans had had now their parachutists, and there were some other countries that were developing it, including um, 
the British and the Americans developed their own airborne and it was very prestigious and it was all a volunteer unit. So within the, within the army, you had to actually volunteer to become a paratrooper. And so it starts off with uh, the company captain, with Captain Herbert Sobel, who was the company commander. He was really, really hard on the men as they had just reported for duty and would often take them up this hill. Um, and this hill started to become infamous. It was called Kurahi, and it soon became a, a little rallying cry for the men of Easy Company, just remembering their hard days at Georgia, or in Georgia. And so it, it introduces the company commander, it introduces a lot of the uh, non-commissioned officers and some of the lower level uh, infantrymen, but also it introduces uh, Lieutenants Nixon and Winters, who become pretty important characters in the story. So it goes through their whole uh, indoctrination into the airborne and eventually shows them going through airborne school where they eventually they jump out of airplanes and earn their coveted wings. And when you're also made a uh, paratrooper, you get to do things like tuck your pants into your boots and fluff them out uh, and as well just wear the wings. So it's a pretty prestigious thing and, and eventually they go through that. Later they go on through to England. So... Jeff, as I was reading uh, Band of Brothers, it really kind of seemed to me, as you're saying right now as well, that Band of, the Band of Brothers, the Airborne unit or company or division, I'm, I'm not really sure um, what you'd call them. Easy Company was the company. And anyway, it seems like they were a very, kind of like a special forces unit. Was that Was that like true? Were they more like a special forces unit or were they more like just a regular army? Yeah, so there wasn't the special forces as... We know them today. Back during World War II, there were specialty units like the Marine Ranger or the Marine Raiders, and the Rangers that were attached to the Army, and the Frogmen that were in the Navy, among you know other different groups. And the Airborne was definitely considered a special forces group. Uh, in fact, now it still is technically considered to be under the branch of not necessarily the special forces, but it is a specialty within the the Army. So yeah, it is a very uh, prestigious thing even still today and was kind of the forerunner for what we have so going back to the to the story of band of brothers as they land in england they start preparing for their first jump it's now 1944 they've spent the last year and a half in in very strenuous training and now it's time for them to make their first jump and dwight d eisenhower actually has this really famous picture with uh, when he visits the 101st Airborne right before they go in and jump in D-Day. So in the early hours of June 6, 1944, they all get on C-47s, uh, C-47 airplanes, and then they take off. And one thing that they didn't anticipate was all of the anti-aircraft fire that, would, that was happening over the drop zones, which led for the 82nd and the 101st Airborne who were getting dropped over France uh, to get really scattered. So the story picks up with uh, essentially this, all of these men and their fragmented stories of their first days on D-Day. Uh, it goes through having Wild Bill Garnier, whose um, family, whose brother had actually just been killed in Italy. It shows him getting essentially revenge on some Germans who he ambushes. It shows Richard Winters reuniting with these teams and then eventually them making their way to the rendezvous point. Obviously, there's hundreds and hundreds of stories of paratroopers, and it was almost impossible to focus on them all. 
but they range from people getting stuck in trees, people landing almost on Germans, uh, some getting captured, and unfortunately others getting killed, some while they were still in their parachutes. And something I didn't realize as I was reading it is that I didn't realize that they that they were the first people in. I didn't realize that they were the, you know, they were the first of the first. They landed before any of the boats had even started to come ashore. So they're pretty much being dropped behind and they're like, take out some guns. And then they get uh, really scattered. And then their commanders are like, I guess we need to take out some guns. So you have a bunch of people just kind of wandering around places that weren't even on their maps, you know, just fighting for their lives. They're not close to anybody. They've lost a lot of their equipment. And it's just pretty much these people overcoming insurmountable odds to pretty much make, I believe it was Utah Beach assailable. Yeah, so uh, what happens is uh, Lieutenant Winters and his company gets to a rendezvous point where they're told that there is a four-gun battery that's just pounding Utah Beach. And so they get sent to go take it out. And of all of those men that went with them, Every single one of them received a decoration. They wound up routing over 50 Germans, destroying all four guns, and making Utah Beach a safer place to land for our troops. And for that, Richard, uh, Lieutenant Winters was awarded the Distinguished Service Cross. And I, and I reference him a lot because, especially in this early story, he's fairly pivotal as an inspirational figure to, uh, to the men under his command. In addition, they, he lost the cat. He lost a... Uh, so, one point I hadn't mentioned is that Sobel had actually gotten transferred out of the company uh, and was no longer attached with them when they jumped. And a new captain was over them, and he unfortunately had died. Um, and so that actually left Lieutenant Winters to now step into uh, more duty as as a captain. And one thing that um, was significant about that, um, as it goes through the book, it continuously references um, the diaries and interviews and other messages by many of the members of this band of brothers who would all say how Lieutenant Winders was the greatest soldier that any of them had ever served with and how all of them, you know, many of them would say how they owed their lives and many of the successes of the company to Lieutenant Winters and now Captain Winters and his bravery, his courage, and his leadership. For sure. So even though that they had now finished with taking these guns, and they had finished now with D-Day, with their very first day of combat, they now had to fight the rest of France. So they spent, honestly, the next 30 days going from city to city. One notable was Carantan, that they wound up assaulting and taking a very tough battle. Um, taking many losses, or you know, many losses and many casualties. Um, among those, Popeye Wynn was was wounded during that first assault on D-Day, and others were wounded in various ways, including if you ever see the miniseries uh, Albert Blythe, who was a private during the war, was also wounded in the neck. Where just one point that I always like to try and clear up is that Albert Blythe actually did not die. Shortly after the war, as it was indicated in the documentary, or sorry, in the miniseries, he actually wound up living and spent a few more years in the army and, you know, lived to have a fairly normal life up until he did have a premature death, but it wasn't as a result of his injuries. They finished their time in France 
and after their time in France, they get pulled back and then they start to receive replacements. And this is where a really interesting dynamic, one of my favorite stories starts to take place between two of the Easy Company members. The first person who I'll mention, and I've already mentioned him, is William Garnier, uh, who's a very outspoken member of the company who's now elevated to sergeant. And along with him is a replacement whose name is Babe Heffron. And they were from the same neighborhood. And anyways, they really take a liking together. And they wind up even writing a book later together about their experiences. And I really like their, uh, their relationship. So I think one really, really important point is that these people continued to get closer and closer together. And that as they now took on their next assignment, which was now jumping into Holland as a part of Operation Market Garden, which was to uh, take a lot, a large portion of the Rhine River and some other key places. Uh, as they go into that, you start to see these replacements becoming really a part of the company and become a part of the team. Although as they start to lose replacements, you start to see the older veterans start to become skeptical of becoming friends with those replacements in order to almost safeguard their emotions. After they get pulled out um, from Holland, now their second campaign, they believe that they're going to be having a really nice R&R before the Germans actually do one of their largest last assaults and create a big bulge in the line near Belgium, which is then called the Battle of the Bulge. And this was one of the most pivotal points in the story because the 101st Airborne Division actually winds up getting surrounded and then they hold off the enemy and they don't have any air support because the weather's so bad. They are freezing, it is in the middle of winter, they're getting shelled incessantly, uh, they're always on the attack and they wind up holding and waiting until Patton's 3rd Army is, is able to come and offer some relief and fending off that huge German attack. And, and this was not just a big battle and a big moment in the war, this was a big battle um, in the media, this was the United States had, you know, they were obviously covering the war constantly, but it was also often very difficult to highlight individual efforts and individual um, companies and individual units. But in the Battle of the Bulge, they highlight in America, they're running newspapers and they're showing the battle, you know, aerial photographs of the Battle of the Bulge of the 101st Airborne completely surrounded by this massive German offensive. And it's just something that was so incredible that the entire world was pretty much looking at them at that time. Not that the whole battle, the whole battle was very, very important, but it's just that whole part, everybody was paying attention and it was really a, a really almost insurmountable odds that they were facing. Yeah, and then they, then they uh, begin the assault now into Germany where they wind up taking Brecourt Manor, which was one of Hitler's homes, which is, a big part of the culmination of the book, they wind up serving, uh, you know, doing some patrol duty in different places. I think that one of the main points of the story is that while they were there for some of the most pivotal moments during World War II, these really were just individuals and people. And I know that we haven't really been able to have the time to highlight them all here and in their individual exploits, but or their individual stories and adventures, but these were people. And each one of them had their own unique stories to tell. And a lot of them never will have an opportunity to tell those stories. But from D-Day all the way to Germany and VE Day, Victory in Europe Day, these soldiers were on the front lines for a lot of that time and suffered horrendous casualties, but were able to 
then go after the war and lead productive lives, which is almost hard to imagine. But I think that one of my favorite parts about uh, this whole story is that you see the individual growth of these individuals. As you know, one of the things that we were talking about earlier uh, in the show before we started the podcast was how awesome it was that they promoted from within and how they took such care of each other as these individual soldiers moved through the ranks. So as you saw these people who started as privates and later like Carwood Lipton became a lieutenant, uh, his connection with the men and his battle experience wound up making him a very, very valuable leader and somebody that I think we can all really look up to. Yeah, um, at the very beginning of the book, it was, it's talking about some of the statistics of the 101st Airborne and specifically Easy Company. And they took 150% casualties during the, their uh, various campaigns throughout Europe. Like Jeff said, from um, from Normandy, not Normandy, from Utah Beach, well, D-Day, to Hitler's Eagle's Nest, and pretty much till the end of the war in Europe. And that's an amazing amount of casualties. And some of them... Uh, there were many of them were hurt two times, some three times, and there were even a couple that were um, injured four times that were labeled as casualties four different times, Be- and they just kept fighting and kept fighting, and it really is to me a mark of the the human spirit and what people can do when they're fighting for something that they believe is more important than they are, of what they can do and what they can overcome in order to achieve that goal. So one, one of my recommendations for why you should totally read this book is you get a great example of what true leadership is. And even though your leadership probably most likely won't be on the battlefield, whatever quote unquote battlefield you are facing, whether, you know, it's uh, just trying to raise a family or working, you know, at a company, the leadership principles that are displayed in the book for good and for bad are on full display on this book. And I know that we can't go into all of them, but one, that, a couple that I would like to highlight is even though Captain Sobel was, the, the men totally hated him. He pushed them so hard and was such a jerk to them. He was still able to bring them together. Now, I'm not advocating that you have that kind of leadership, but he did have some kernels of good leadership in there because he is truly what made them, um, he was kind of the inception point for creating the Band of Brothers. Then you look at some really good forms of leadership like Richard Winters, always being first, always being out in front, leading the men, encouraging them, loving them, always sticking up for them. Um, I think that there's a great example for anybody who's read the book or seen the the, uh, the HBO miniseries when he is actually ordered to send the men out on a patrol and then he finds an excuse not to do it because he didn't want them to take casualties during the very end of the war. I mean, just really, really good. But then you really look at the non-commissioned officers, the sergeants and the corporals, who are amazing. As you read this book, you see why leadership is so powerful. And if you want people to respect and love you, you know, there's just a lot there. And that's probably the main reason why I would encourage you to go out and read this book if you haven't already or to reread it if you haven't uh, read it in a while. Another thing that Jeff that Jeff touched on that I really, really loved was the whole concept of fighting for something greater than yourself. Several times throughout the book, it talks about how the soldiers felt that the camaraderie that they shared with each other, that brotherhood, and that's why the book is called Band of Brothers, because they felt like brothers. That was the strongest, for many of them, the strongest motivation 
to keep going, to keep fighting when the casualties were mounting and when they were months on the front lines and they were just spending so much time on the front lines just going forward and taking casualties and, and fighting and dying that they could keep going because they were fighting for something more important at least that they felt was more important than themselves. And to me, that's something that I want to think about more in my life because I have things that I value more than I value myself. And I would really like to maybe incorporate that a little bit better about how can I fight for the things that I love more? What can I do in my life to really let it be known that those things that are important to me are important to me and let those people in my life know that they're important? So, Jeff, what's one more thing that you took away from Banner Brothers? I think that what it does is it teaches you a lot of history by teaching you on the microscopic level, on the platoon level, and the company level. It's able to shed essentially the whole story of World War II and unravel it through this individual story of this company, these platoons, and then ultimately the... uh, individual soldiers so that's just something that i really really like is stephen ambrose is a master at being able to make you feel for each one of these people that was involved in the conflict while not losing sight of the overall picture you are still learning so much about world war ii during this time while not losing your personal connection to the soldiers and that's something i really like so kevin why don't you tell us a little bit you know your last thought on what you learned another thing i took away from band of brothers is that Stephen E. Ambrose didn't hold back any of the good or the bad that was part of the company. Any of their the great heroic acts that they did, but they didn't hold back on their flaws either. And I think that's something really important for us to take away from. To me, those men are heroes. And all of the men in our arms, all the men and women in our armed services are heroes. And the people who fight for our freedom are heroes, but they are not perfect. And I think a lot of times in our world today, we hold so many people too accountable for their flaws. We're not looking at what is good about them because none of us are perfect. And I think it's important that we honor those people who deserve honoring despite their flaws. Not that we should forgive people's flaws and just push them away, but rather we can honor people for the good that they do without endorsing the bad. Thank you so much for joining us today for Chapter 3, Band of Brothers. We loved it and would definitely encourage you to go out there and listen to it. Don't forget to please live your story and have a great day.